Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palenker. You know, Wizzy and I are constantly shaking the bushes on either side of the Media Path, hoping some interesting new content will fall out so we can pass it along to you. And then... The most important thing is we get to talk to amazing guests like we're going to do today with the one and only Bill Medley, the bass baritone voice of the gods and a producer who, with Bobby Hatfield, made up the Righteous Brothers, one of the most successful groups in the history of rock and roll. I can't wait to talk to this nice man, Bill Medley. But first, Weezy, what do you have for us? Well, I've been uh, looking around. (laughs) <laughs> I stream. Did you see the news of the world? It, you don't have to buy it anymore. You can rent it. Right. That's right. Yeah. You, I, you, I wait for that moment, you know, for the rental to kick in. Uh, news of the world, Tom Hanks. So, you know, Tom Hanks, he doesn't make bad movies. This is his solemn vow to us. So mm-hmm. it's like it should really just every movie should just be titled The New Tom Hanks and people would go. So the news of the world is now streaming. It takes place five years after the end of the Civil War as Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, played by Tom Hanks, earns his living by traveling from town to town to read from newspapers. This was a big event in the town. It was like the Righteous Brothers had come. You know, they were like, everybody go down to the town hall. The, the guy's about to read from a newspaper. All right. So uh, the folks would gather en route Tom Hanks' character crosses paths with a 10-year-old girl who has been taken by the Kiowa people. The Kiowas are being forced marched to a reservation, and Captain Kidd agrees to take the child to her aunt and uncle. With no common language, together they travel across the harsh and unforgiving Texas plains fighting for their very survival and learning about themselves through each other. And like any Tom Hanks movie, it's beautiful, it's gripping, it's meaningful. The child is played wonderfully by Helena Nengel. I'm sure that she's going to correct me on the pronunciation of her name at the age of 10, who is from Germany, which gives her a unique accent when Tom Hanks is teaching her the English words. It's just a really fun film. I highly recommend it. I saw that show and I wondered, and and what I wondered about is, was that like the CNN of the prairie? Did they actually have guys that would walk around reading snippets from the newspaper to to interested people and make a living doing it? And what was great about the Tom Hanks character was that he wouldn't just read the news. He would engage with people. And if people were upset about the news they were hearing, he would he would turn it into a healthy conversation rather than this, this sort of vitriolic, you're right, I'm wrong kind of thing. Yeah, you know, he would interactive t- communication. Yeah, with the news as his as his anchor, he would get people to better understand each other. I really, really love cool. that film. Yeah. Glad you brought it up. This is called Picture a Scientist. It was broadcast on PBS Nova in April and now streams on Netflix. Wheezy, I think you would really find this an interesting film. It's about women in the workplace, specifically women in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. And I wanted to watch this because my daughter studying to be a psychologist, and uh, it just caught my eye. And female scientists are still in the minority, and female scientists suffer everything from brutal harassment, like unwanted sexual advances, all the way down to very subtle things like being left off an email list, kind of a passive-aggressive victimization there. The film follows three prominent female scientists and their very personal stories. Biologist Nancy Hopkins, chemist Rachel Burks. Rachel's also African-American. She goes deep into the racial biases in science as well. It's pretty eye-opening. And geologist Jane Willenbring. These are top scientists at top universities like MIT and they still have the same problems we have in the rest of American life. The film wraps up with ways that each of these women have helped to make science more diverse and equitable for all. Interesting movie. I'm in. Do it. You have sold me. <laughs> this weekend, I read a book called The Time of My Life by a Bill Medley. Is this sounding at all familiar? <laughs> uh, with input from Bill's friends, romantic interests, and coworkers, Bill gives us an unvarnished look at his triumphs and tragedies as he carves an illustrious path through five decades of showbiz history. Bill opens up about the great African-American music that inspired him, his loving and complicated relationship with Bobby Hatfield, the murder of his first wife, Karen, and his struggle to raise their son, Darren, alone, his close relationship with Elvis, the devastation of losing his voice and how he reclaimed it, his smash duet with Jennifer Warrens on I've Had the Time of My Life, how he broke a lot of hearts, Darlene Love, Mary, Wilson, Connie, Stevens among them, to settle down at long last with his lovely wife, Paula. This book is a page turner. I absolutely loved it. Highly recommend it. 
Great guy. We're I think so, you should introduce him. I'm going to do that right now. We're, we're very excited to have a chance to visit with this man. He's got that huge bottom voice, one half of the Righteous Brothers. I used to turn up the bass on my car radio, and his voice would vibrate the windshield wipers. <laughs> they delivered some of the most iconic songs of the 20th century. You Lost That Love and Feeling, which still holds the record for being the most played song in the history of modern radio. Also, Unchanged Melody, Soul and Inspiration, The Time of My Life, Rock and Roll Heaven. He wrote and produced hits for not only the Righteous Brothers, but other acts. He composed and produced music for television and movies. Still an accomplished solo career, and we're learning of late that the Righteous Brothers will live on in uh, various venues, including Las Vegas. Let's talk about it with Bill Medley. Bill, so nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Good to see you. Good to see you, my friend. I, I had a chance to meet you and see you a few years ago at the Lewis Family Theater in Rancho Cucamonga. You did your one-man show which is a really wonderful retrospective, personal anecdotes about the early years of rock and roll, the Beatles and Elvis, and you performed with your daughter McKenna. And um, I'm so happy to hear that, uh, that that she's doing well. She occasionally opens or sings along with you, and you're you're keeping on, keeping on. Great news. Well, listen, uh, I'm I'm 80 years old, and I'm just thrilled to death to still be in the circle. I can't, I can't mm-hmm. believe. It. Uh, here at 80 years old doing doing songs that uh, I recorded when I was 23. Well, I want to take you back to the, the moment when you were in the recording studio uh, with uh, Love and Feeling because you described some dynamics in place that were not perhaps productive that, w- that were going on. Can you sort of tell the story about the recording of that song? Well, uh, You've Lost That Love and Feeling was re- uh, written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde, great, great writers. And uh, Phil Spector produced uh, You've Lost That Love and Feeling. And uh, it was pretty odd because Bobby and I, from, uh, you know, like 62 to 65, we just did nothing but rhythm and blues, rock and roll, and uh, which wasn't a commercial thing to do. So we were uh, like rhythm and blues singers, and, and a lot of people thought we were... We were black, and the color television kind of destroyed our career. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, when we met with uh, Phil, uh, Barry Mann and Phil, at the hotel, and they sang the song to us, and they got done, I, I, I said, wow, what a great song for the Everly Brothers. <laughs> and uh, and, I, and I, I was being honest. I couldn't believe that they, you know, that... Phil Spector had called Barry and Cynthia and said, I'm going to produce the Righteous Brothers. And we were just shocked that they gave us this song. And that was uh, kind of not what we were doing. And, and when they played it for us, they, they had Phil and Barry men had high kind of thin tenor voices. And uh, so when they started teaching it to Bobby and I, I I had it was too high for me. I couldn't get up to that. You lost that love. I couldn't get up there. Mm-hmm. So they would lower it, and they were doing it real fast. It was almost like a, a bordering on being a dancer. You never close your eyes anymore. Well, you know more bouncy. That, so they lowered it, and every time they would lower it, Phil Spector would slow it down. Uh. Finally, we got you never close your eyes in a whole different kind of song. Yeah, and it's so iconic with your voice kicking in that opening line. It's just like people know what the second they hear the first note, they know what's about to happen. But I but I, I was wondering if you could retell the story about all the people that thought that they could hang out with you while you were recording your vocals and how <laughs> distracting that is for an artist. Yeah, it's very distracting because sometimes there's stuff going on in the booth, la- la- laughing and chatting and and, you know, I think there was a couple of the Rolling Stones were there and, and every producer in town. Phil Phil would let uh, everybody come in to watch us uh, or watch all of his artists put their voice on the track. But he wouldn't let anybody in uh, to watch him how he uh, uh, did the track, uh. Uh, which was pretty amazing. And uh, so it just got real tough. I mean, we sang for two or three hours and. 
Phil, it was kind of Phil Spector's party, you sure. know. And finally, we we just called Phil out to uh, to the studio and said, "Listen, man, uh, uh, that's too distracting. We'll be back tomorrow at six, and uh, and we'll put our voice on at that point." And uh, and he was fine with it. He understood. And we said, "Please don't have anybody in the studio. It's very." It's, remarkably distracting you guys would know that I'm so just, yeah and you kicked well, out the rolling stones which is awesome <laughs> well, yeah. you guys need now, to leave they're, they're, i mean we went on the first uh rolling stone tour yeah america tour so they were kind of friends so that's why i think keith and, and mick came to the studio which was very nice it was great to have all those wonderful people but uh just a little distracting and the song such a heavy song uh that and phil was uh he really knew what he wanted so he didn't settle for anything he would have you do it again and again and again and it wasn't like recording today it was you know i think it was probably two or three track so every time you would do you lost that love and feet one time well if you wanted to redo it you were erasing what oh, you had okay so it was uh and we weren't used to that you know we were we were used to doing rhythm and blues and just stuff that we were familiar with and uh this was a whole different uh, a whole different animal but it were obviously it worked out great we were talking to some guys from the wrecking crew who yeah. said that he was a slave driver, particularly with the session players, and he'd get them to play over and over and over again, and then they would hit a sweet spot. They got so tired that they didn't care about what they were doing, and that's when their playing was the best, and it was usually the last or second to last take hours into them being there and playing in the session. Did he do that with singers as well? It sounds like he did. Yeah, I mean, I think we, over the couple of days, uh, we probably probably spent 12 hours putting the voice, the vocals on that. And, uh, but uh, yeah, the poor, the poor, poor wrecking crew. I mean, they, first off, they had three or four guitars. So he would listen just to the guitars and, and, and mix the, the uh, synthesizer, you know, like a synthesizer uh, where you would, mix the strings in with the piano and this and so he would mix those four guitars uh and they would just ding 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 i mean for hours <laughs> and these were great 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 uh musicians I mean, glenn campbell uh, and just mm -hmm. the best musicians in the world and once he would catch get that then he would go to the four pianos or three pianos and and mix that then he would go to to the drums and this and and what you have to understand is that there was probably about I don't know 12 to 18 guys in, in this one studio and uh and it was two or three track machine and so by the time he finished and when he said okay guys that's it we're done it was totally mixed with the EQ uh, verb and all that stuff. So he was a he was a very brilliant guy. It's kind of um, like he was playing people, like he was playing you as his instrument, and 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 he and he didn't really care a lot about how people felt within all of that. And it seems like he would do things to pit you and Bobby against each other, and that he had his own agenda, and it didn't really matter what other people wanted. And he liked the idea of having all these girl groups because then he got to say it's a Phil Spector record and no one really knew the names of any of those girls, but you guys were really breaking out. And then he tried to pit you against each other by giving Bobby an extra solo or whatever. Um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. He, uh, he, yeah, he, he didn't like the fact that, cause you're right. They, they weren't Ronette records or the crystals. They were Phil Spector productions. And you've lost that love and feeling became a a, a righteous brother record, and uh, he wasn't all that thrilled with that. So he he went on to try and break us up, 
which was really weird. I mean, uh, he was going to make a huge amount of money producing the Righteous Brothers and uh, and to want to break us up. You know, that's like opening up Walmart and everybody wants to come in and then close <laughs> it next week. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, but we but we got through it. And uh, Bobby and I hung together because we we realized what he was doing. So in that same period of time, you did you lost that love and feel, and then Unchained Melody. Did you do all all the Phil Spector hits all at one time in that in that series of days? Well, we had recorded "You've Lost That Love and Feeling," then we did a "You've Lost That Love and Feeling" album, and Phil Spector asked me to produce the uh, albums because. Like you were saying, he took too long, way too long, uh, just on the singles and spent way too much money. So he asked me to do the albums and he knew I could do them cheaper and quicker. So uh, uh, the the song that followed Love and Feeling was just once in my life. And when, when it was time to do that album, Bobby wanted to do Unchained Melody, which we we knew from the 50s from uh, Roy Hamilton. It was in a, a movie called Unchained. Uh, the movie didn't do well, but uh, we loved that song and loved, loved Roy Hamilton. And Bobby wanted to do it. So I produced Unchained Melody for the album. And uh, Phil thought, Phil, like the, I guess, thought it was such a bad record that he put it on the B side of, of uh, uh, his his production was hung on you. And for some reason, every disc jockey in the country uh, turned it over and started playing Unchained Melody and it became a huge hit. And, and Bobby killed it. Bobby, <clears throat> great, great singer. And, and that was kind of the relationship you had with Phil. He, he got credit for having produced some of the hits that you had that you actually produced yourself, but he got the written credit for it, right? Yeah, I think when Unchained Melody first came out, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the title, I think it said produced by Bill Medley because he didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> but <clears throat> when it became a hit, then it, then he changed, he changed, uh, you know, the that, label. That it was record, uh, produced by Phil. Yeah, and maybe if you guys can find those collectors out there, if it says produced by Bill Medley on Unchained Melody, that's probably a collector's item. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, I don't know how many of them were out there, but yeah, it would be a collector's item. I'm fascinated by your life. You grew up in Santa Ana, California. That's that's Orange County, California. Yet you were enamored with and drawn to blues and R&B, B.B. King and Bobby Blue Bland and uh, Bo Diddley and all those early R&B and blues acts. It's so interesting. It seems so out of place from the environment you grew up in. And that's why you guys started with uh, R&B. And your first hit, Little Latin Loopy Lou, was a great sort of an R&B hit. Yeah, we, uh, Bobby, I was raised in Santa Ana, Bobby was raised in Anaheim, and uh, we didn't know each other until about 20, 21 years old. Uh, My guitar player was also playing in Bobby's band, and so he would, Barry would tell me about Bobby, and he would tell Bobby about me, and, but when we were both 15 years old, uh, there was a great, a black radio station, uh, Hunter Hancock, KGFJ up in LA, that we could barely tune in uh, on our radios. And first time I heard Little Richard, I just said, wow, what what is that? And, and you got to know that at 15 years old, I wasn't looking to be a singer or, or anything like it. So hearing Little Richard and kind of emulating him vocally and then Ray Charles and Bobby Bland and all those guys that was really uh you know I I always say that I was very fortunate to have little Richard and Ray Charles come to my house every day in the form of a record and teach teach me how to sing (laughs) and teach Bobby how to sing so uh when it came time to record and I had written the song Little Latin Oopaloo and uh, the record company came in to see us. Uh, we were in a club working, and uh, 
said, I love that song. Let's go in and record it. And that's the way we sang. Uh, we didn't know any other, you know, any other. It, it would have been harder if they said, can you do it white? <laughs> so, <laughs> I yeah, I'm going to have to get somebody else. But you had practiced or kind of invented your own form of multi-tracking, right? <laughs> yeah. As a kid. Yeah. When I was, oh, man, probably about 18, 17 or 18 years old, uh, there was always a piano in the house because my mom played the piano and sang. And uh, so I learned how to play enough, like Fats Domino songs, Elvis Presley songs, certainly Little Richard, and uh, n- not Ray Charles. Ray Charles. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I would get two recorders, and I would sing into one recorder, and then then play that one and record that record and sing a vocal background. And my grandpa, who was a comedian and was living with us at the time, he just, he said, man, you are going to make millions out of this. I don't know what you're doing, but it's fascinating. Have, yeah, this is so wrong, but there's something wrong. Could you tell the, the Whoopi Goldberg story? Because I, I think that's just so cool. I mean, and it's a lesson to all of us about how important it is that every interaction is important in our lives. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I can swear on this show. Sure oh, hell can. yes. Go right <laughs> ahead. Oh, okay. Well, uh, it was funny. I, uh, uh, we were, I was working. I wasn't a righteous brother at the time. I was, Bobby and I broke up in 68, and I was working in Reno, and, and Whoopi was uh, filming a sister, sister act, mm-hmm. what it was called. And she was right down the street. And uh, she came in, she came in one night to see me, uh, to watch the show. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I would do this Ray Charles medley. It really was a country medley. It was born to lose. You don't know me and I can't stop loving you, which Ray did, uh, country, uh, so I would pass it off as this is a tribute to Ray Charles, but the truth is I just love those songs and I love loved uh, country music as a blues singer. It, it, it was fun to do. So I did this song, the the the, the medley. It's a medley of songs, and uh, and it always got a great reaction, and people were clapping, applauding. And as soon as the applause died down, I hope I can use this word because it's perfect. Just died down, died down. And from way in the back, you could hear Whoopi say, fuck Michael Bolton. <laughs> Holy shit. And I mean, obviously, hearing her voice, everybody knew who what, you know, who was doing it. And, and by the way, Michael Bolton's obviously a phenomenal singer. But, no, and I, yeah. ma- I noticed that you didn't put his name in the book, but it's so abundantly clear that you're talking about Michael Bolton <laughs> that, I, that my brain said exactly what you just said. But yeah, I she, want you to tell the story of what happened when she was a little girl, Why part of why she loves you so much. Well, she came backstage, uh, you know, after the show, and I said, why are you? I said, it's unusual, you know, that you're a, a big fan and she said, I was, she said, I was a young girl and Bobby and I did a, a show at Central Park, a huge, huge show. And they were, uh, they were running us out the back door. So, uh, you know, before the audience could get at us. And I ran by and there was this a young black girl and, and ran by her and she said, could you please sign this? Could you please... And I apparently, because I, I don't remember this, I, I stopped, I came back, and I signed her autograph, and uh, I think I gave her a kiss on the cheek uh-huh. and ran out. And she said that was so special to her, and uh, uh, I wish I could remember it. It would make me feel better about myself. <laughs> but it's probable that you're doing sweet things like that all the time, and that there's lots of people in the world who have those memories of you. That little girl well, just happened to be Whoopi Goldberg. Well, you know, that, that was, that, that was, you know, like really putting the stamp on, this is why you pay attention to the audience. And, uh, when I, when I went out on my own in 68, I started going out front 
to sign autographs and sell stuff and this and that, and got to hear so many incredible stories, incredible stories that Bobby and I just never, never knew because, you know, you're, you're just busy doing what you do and you don't, you're not, you don't realize how you're touching uh, people out there. And especially a lot of the uh, Vietnam guys, the veterans would come in because our, our music was real big over there, you know, 65, 66 in that era. And uh, to have those guys and their wives come up and, and, and hand us stuff, you know, like we should be giving you guys stuff. They would be giving us little medals or stuff or things and, and how our music uh, helped them over there. And man, yeah, it's, uh, let's face it. You, you were, uh, a perfect partner for guys that couldn't do their own foreplay. (laughs) Just pop on the righteous brothers and slowly undress. There it is right there. (laughs) <laughs> really it's some of the most romantic songs and i think that's why you know you lost that love and feeling is you know the hands down the greatest the, the longest running and most played hit on radio well yeah listen it was written by barry and cynthia it's a it's a great song and phil Spector did a great job and bobby and i did our part and uh but but yeah it's funny that you say that uh, uh they uh, Every guy will come up to you and say, boy, I want to thank you, man. <laughs> I got laid. I was in the back seat. I got laid. laid and, so, and then then five minutes later, their wife will come up and say, I just want to thank you, boy. My husband and I had so many wonderful moments with your music. <laughs> They'd phrase boy. it a little so more delicately. I think, the, you know, the mu- if you talk about Blue-Eyed Soul, um, I think the music is is America to a lot of us because it's a it's a blend of who all we are all living here together in this country and how we've in, influenced one another and how you two guys you know were influenced by African American music and and then made it your own it just kind of personifies what America is and maybe that's why it means so much to servicemen when they're when they're missing home and they're serving Yeah listen if that's all our music ever did that would that would have been plenty good and uh, oddly enough, uh, down right next to Santa Ana was Tustin, and there was a Marine base there. And Bobby and I were called the the Paramours, and the, but the Black Marines heard that there was a couple of white guys down at the club singing rhythm and blues, so they started showing up. And uh, in the fifties and sixties and probably seventies, uh, if uh, if you had a great looking car. Uh, a black guy would probably say, boy, what a righteous looking car. Yeah. What a righteous car. And if they <laughs> liked you as a friend, they would call you a brother. So a lot of times when we would come to work, they would say, hey, righteous brother, how you doing? Which meant good friend. Mm-hmm. And so we went, when we went in to record uh, uh, Little Latin Loopy Lou, we didn't have a name. And I think Bobby said, well, let's, let's call ourselves what the Black Marines have been calling us. And so that you know, we came by that name pretty honestly. I want to talk about those early groups because I'm fascinated by how you end up where you are. The Romancers and the Paramours playing in Little Italy and those great clubs down in Santa Ana and Anaheim. And was it the Paramours in which Mitch Ryder was a member and then later went on for the Detroit Wheels and had his own kind of fame? Yeah, no, no. A lot of people think that that was, no, Mitch Ryder, I think is from Detroit. Right, and uh, I thought he was part of your history. It's another Mitch Ryder. No, Mike Ryder. Oh, Mike Ryder. Oh, Ryder. That's me not reading it right. (laughs) But Mitch sounds better. I think that's (laughs) Fritz. Sorry about that. I had a whole, I had a whole history created here. It's seeing the word you want to see, rather than (laughs) the word that is there. Well, it's funny. Mitch Ryder had a hit with a little Latin loopy. Oh, did he? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. After after we did it, yeah. Yeah. So you you talk you kind of talk in your book about a question that Sammy Davis Jr. asked you that you weren't quite able to answer, but as you were kind of summarizing your thoughts, you know, about what you are, who you are and what you do, Sammy had asked you how you do it because here's a guy who's like considered pound for pound the greatest showman in the world has ever seen and he's asking you how do you do it, which that, you know, that must have been a moment. 
And what he really wants to know is like, how is your soul coming from in here out of you so naturally? And you had a chance to really think about that question. And you you said, I think the music goes from my heart to my voice and it doesn't make a stop at my brain. Well, uh, <clears throat> Frank Sinatra uh, brought Bobby and I in 65 to uh, Las Vegas, the Sands Hotel. And we were there. Uh, <clears throat> well, I broke up. The, I left the Righteous Brothers in 68. And, uh, <clears throat> but Frank Sinatra told us we needed, <laughs> needed to go to the health club every night at five o'clock because we were kind of having va- what they would call Vegas throat, mm-hmm. very high in the desert. And we were singing all this crazy rock and roll. Why Frank Sinatra let us be in the lounge while he was in the main room? I still don't have that answer. But uh, Sammy Davis was in the main room and uh, I was in the lounge, which was a great lounge. And uh, he, uh, so I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting in a chair in the, in the, uh, steam room and uh he came came, and he had a pad and paper and he he said bill can i talk to him and i said of course he said how do you do it i said how do i do what he said you know how how do you how do you do what you do he said i've watched your show several times and i can tell that you're not thinking about it and you 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 sound it's so authentic. It's, it's a mind blower. And, and I told him about, you know, well, I was 15 years old and was taught by little Richard, Ray Charles, Bobby Bland. And that's the only music I knew, uh, you know, because uh, at 15 years old, I hadn't been in the business for 10 years and decided, well, I think I'll start singing rhythm and blues. So uh, uh, I said, I, and, and that's when I said, I said, the, the best way I can tell you is that, uh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it goes, you know, from my, whatever I said, from my, from my heart into my voice. Yeah. And, and I don't, and I don't think, cause he said, I can tell you're not thinking about it. You're just, you're just flat doing it. And, uh, and I thought that was cool. And, and I felt bad for Sammy because. Uh, he, he was, you know, he spent his whole life uh, trying to be Sinatra and those guys, you know, and then the 60s hits and he now and he, he it was very important to him to be hip. And he was hip. He was the greatest <laughs> performer in the world. And that's that's what I told him. And he so he spent his whole life trying to be Frank Sinatra. Now, all of a sudden, the hip thing is 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 uh ray charles you know james brown and and he now wanted he he now wanted to do some of that music oh okay wanted to get more authentic he had spent a lot of his career just chasing the cool kids yeah exactly the kind of the white performers and now to stay hip he, he wanted to know how to do James Brown and Ray Charles. Mm-hmm. And I told him, and I, and I probably was going out on a limb. I said, Oh, Sammy, I don't think you should worry about that. You're, you're the greatest performer and singer in the world. And uh, he said, yeah, but I really want to understand how you do that. And uh, so I kind of felt, kind of felt bad for him that he, at that age, whatever age he was in, in 69 or 70, uh, that he was going to go chase that. And I, I, uh, I just told him, I said, I don't think you, I don't think you should chase that. You're, you're the greatest at what you do. And so don't sand that down, but uh, I think that's he, he would still do some of that. That's stuff. excellent advice. That's probably exactly what he needed to hear. You know, he'd yeah. been honing it since he was a baby. Just do what you do, buddy. Just do what you do. Yeah. I said, I, I just, I'm doing what I do. And you're doing what you do. Yeah. You know, and, uh, Bill, you talked about the throat issues. And so mm-hmm. let's talk about your battle with the throat. Uh, you were doing three shows a night in Vegas with the Righteous Brothers. And then what happened? Well, you know, they would call it Vegas. But what it really was, was just it was dry. And uh, 
when El, my, my contract ran out at the Sands, I think in uh, seven, uh, 70, somewhere in there. Yeah, 70. And uh, Elvis Presley just came to uh, opened up in Vegas. And uh, Elvis and, and the Righteous Brothers were good friends. And so they they, they tore out the, the uh, lounge that I was working. And uh, so I, 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 my manager went over to uh, the Hilton and said to you, would you like to hire Bill Medley? And somehow, some way, I'm sure Elvis got word of that and uh, made sure that every time he was in the main room, I was in the lounge. Now, that's the way he wanted it. And uh, so while I was there, and it was probably in about 73, I was still doing three shows on the weekend, and I had laryngitis, but I kept doing the show, and I just blew my throat out. You know, it's like it would be like running on a sprained ankle. Yes. You know, it's going to make it worse. Mm -hmm. And I went to a throat doctor, and uh, both of them, big doctors in LA, both said, you'll never, you'll never sing again. You know, you're done. That's one, one of the doctors said my throat looked like hamburger meat. And, oh. uh, and man, uh, it was a mind blower to me because oh. I had quit high school when I was 16. And I mean, I was heading right into a mountain, you know, uh, back there uh, in the early sixties. And so I was a one trick pony. I, if I don't sing, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing, what I would be doing. And, uh, but, uh, thank God I went to the, uh, to the right guy and, uh, took years, you know, for it to come back. And, uh, I'm probably my voice. I know it doesn't sound that way right now because I'm, I'm just getting over sinus attack, but, uh, uh, I'm probably singing better now than I ever have. And uh, thank God. When you think, when you think about it, how, if you think about how things happen for a reason, what did you learn during that time period when you weren't singing that you would not have learned had you continued singing? Well, because, because I had quit school uh, and got, got, you know, fortunate with uh, the Righteous Brothers, I just always felt that I was probably stupid, uh, lazy. And when, uh, we started, when I started taking my voice lessons, uh, and I would take a voice lesson, uh, five times a week, uh, two sessions, uh, a time. So I was doing like 10, 10 sessions a week. And boy, I'm, I'm telling you at the beginning, it was like, la, 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 la. I couldn't even get my chords to touch. And finally, it came around, came around, and I worked hard, man. I, I did everything possible to get my voice back. Went uh, spiritually, went to a shrink, I did change my diet. I did everything I could. And what I learned by the time I got done and my voice was back well enough uh, to record and to perform, I realized, wow, I'm really not stupid and i'm certainly not lazy and uh so that and and that was uh that was a very cool thing probably appreciated your gift more than you had before absolutely it's amazing you know Weezy, if i'll say one thing you know you, you talked about elvis and he always wanted you in the lounge when he was in the main room and frank sinatra told you where to perform and he wanted you in the lounge when he was in the main room it's really counterintuitive to what you hear about stars they're so competitive and egotistical and uh they don't want anybody sort of get off my cloud kind of thing but it sounds like guys like elvis and sinatra and some of the other major talents supported other talent but i have, you, I have a theory he pulls chicks. Oh, so <laughs> good point. This guy's out there in the lounge. He's he's pulling game, you know. And they come out of their show, and it's it's a party. Is that it? Is this all? Is this? I, a, don't, I don't have a clue. <laughs> Sinatra took the Righteous Brothers to Vegas because they had to get his okay for whoever was in the lounge because he would take his big parties after his show and bring them into the lounge. 
which usually was Louis Prima, Keeley Smith, and, mm-hmm. and acts like that. Uh, only thing I can figure is Nancy and Tina Sinatra must have been in the room. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because we were so opposite from what where he was coming from. Well, maybe that's and what it was. You weren't really competitive. You just made a nice evening. But it was us. a nice place to hang out after their show. <laughs> Seriously. And they, they liked they liked enjoying the the Vegas environment, and they wanted to do it in a good show. And you're, the lounge shows they weren't on at exactly the same time as the as the main room shows, correct? No, we were opposite. Yeah, like so it gave them know, a cool I, place like, to hang out. Like Frank or Elvis, they would do a the eight o'clock show. We would do ten o'clock. They would do a twelve o'clock show, and and we would do a two o'clock show. So we want to hear some some Elvis stories while we're on this subject, because boy, oh boy, you you and Elvis were really, really good friends. Yeah, uh, when I when I wrote the book, I said I'm not going to talk about Elvis unless you can talk to George Klein or one of Elvis's guys that that they can say, yeah, that's the truth. And I and George Klein said, well, Bill Medley is one one of Elvis's five. Uh, friends, and uh, so that was cool. That, that was amazing. But I got to know Elvis really, really good on a one, one-on-one, because uh, he would do his eight o'clock show, and when I was just done with my ten o'clock, I don't, I don't know when it was, but he would call me on the phone, say, "Come on down to the dressing room," and uh, it, he. It was about 15 or 20 minutes before his show would start. And it was just Elvis and I and Elvis's hairdresser, which nobody ever got that opportunity. I mean, if you uh, even went back to the dressing room to see Elvis after the show, it was all of his boys and a bunch of girls and this and that. And you really didn't get the talk. So I don't know. I pro- Elvis and I probably had about 100, 150 of those you know, just sitting down talking, and we had a lot in common. Uh, he always wanted to be a, a black bass singer, and I guess <laughs> ah, he thought he was. there it is, right there. You had something you didn't yeah. have. Yeah. Uh, tell us something in your personal, your one-on-ones with him uh, that that the general public wouldn't know about his personality or his heart or his quirks. Well, he he was he was very re- religious. And, and, and I, I was uh, religious and raised in a very religious home. And uh, uh, he just, you know, you just get, when it, and you guys probably know this, uh, when you're one-on-one with, uh, with another artist like Elvis and I sitting down, well, Elvis is really going to be Elvis and I'm going to be Bill, warts and all, you know. And we only become different. Uh, when my manager shows up or my wife and people start showing up and then you start to put on, you know, mm-hmm. I put on my righteous summer. brothers. Yeah. You know? And you guys both sang. You're, you you have the distinction of being two white young men that started in the church and yeah. gospel and church singing was important to both of you and gave you your styles. Yeah. Uh, gospel, well, gospel music and blues and, you know, gospel music is really where all all the soul stuff mm-hmm. started and ended, you know, uh, <clears throat> and in church, you know, every every major black artist will say, well, I started in the church, you know, I mean, from Sam Cooke to Whitney Houston, you name it. And Elvis used to go into some black churches and to hear that music, he was, he just, he just loved it. And, uh, and both Bobby and I just loved uh, gospel music, and uh, we realized and we knew how, you know, where blues and rhythm and blues really came from. And uh, so, yeah, we had that in common, and we both rode motorcycles and and a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff. And 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 like I say, I I got to know Elvis as Elvis. And one night he says, why don't you come up? Because his dressing room was downstairs. So why don't you come up and watch me go on stage? And I said, okay, cool. So we go up and and the band is, and, and Elvis and I are standing there in the wings talking. And the band starts up with all that great 
was it 2000, (laughs) all that. And now the women are screaming and they're going nuts. And, and, and they're, the guys are trying to get, you know, Elvis ready with makeup, his hair. And so I kind of backed away and, and I, and Elvis was kind of in a shadow waiting to go on. And I, and I looked at Elvis and I said, holy crime, that's Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I knew, but I got so comfortable with being, you know, talking with Elvis that it was just a mind blower. And, what it, and then the band kicks in doing all, and the women are literally just, I got so excited, I damn near went on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it from here. But, you, uh, you know what you find out about him? I, I, I've watched this a couple of times. The, the series of Vegas shows when he was preparing for the comeback and they taped like five or six of those rehearsals. He was a very funny person. And he would funny. crack the band up and do liners and and break the tension in the room all the time. He was very entertaining that way. Extremely entertaining. And, and I think, you know, after doing, God, I think he was doing seven nights a week. And he was doing two shows a night. I couldn't do that. Mm-mm. Wouldn't do that, but I couldn't do it. And uh, and I think after, you know, like four or five years of that, I think he started getting a little, you know, like, oh, man, you know, mm-hmm. the same stage, same band, same, you know. And, and I think, I, I don't want to say he got bored. I just think, you know, us artists, I've always said, you know, like doing a concert, if I'm doing a concert in, in Boston, every night is like uh, your first date. You know, it, it's, it, you, you put your best clothes on, you tell your funniest stories, uh, you try not to have gas, you <laughs> and all that. So it's like your first date. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's always exciting. Uh, so I, when you work a stage too much, you kind of get to, so Elvis uh, started getting getting off script, basically, uh, as you would say. And, uh, he would start joking and screwing around with the songs, changing lyrics. And, but, it made yeah, it really was, human, though. I was just amazed. To, and I, I, I just himself. Now, you're going to laugh at this analogy, and I may be way off here, but it, it is it possible that Elvis was a little bit like Britney Spears in that you get really famous at 20 and suddenly you're surrounded by handlers, enablers and really captors. And you're, you don't even know what it's like to adult on your own because you've just been this rocket launched into space. And now you can you can make so much money for so many people that they kind of just keep you held captive. I mean, you were talking about how even even when you guys were on Shindig, Elvis wanted to come on Shindig and the colonel said, no, that's not, you can't go on Shindig. Yeah. Like he didn't, he kind of gave everything over to the colonel because he was a, a young, sensitive guy who needed guidance. And then sometimes you get the wrong guidance. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you're exactly right. And uh, listen, all of his guys, the Memphis Mafia or whether they were called, but they were all great guys. And, uh, but they, they kind of had to end up being yes people, and 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 the colonel pulled pulled all the strings, and uh, so yeah, Elvis, and you know it, it happens to all artists that you know that you're never wrong, and whatever joke you tell is really funny, <laughs> and, and so it's pretty cool actually. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, he. And that, that's why it was so cool to talk to him before the show, because yeah. it was Elvis, the guy, the mm-hmm. kid, you know, from, from Memphis or wherever he was from. And I can tell you one story that I went, I, I just happened to be in town and I went into Elvis's show. And, he, and for some reason, he would always introduce me. And I would tell him, I said, you don't have to do that. I felt stupid because all the women there, they're there to see Elvis. They don't could care less that a Bill Medley is in the audience. And, uh, but, uh, this time he, he, he didn't, uh, he didn't, uh, I'm sorry. Is that for he, you, Bill? Is it, is it, is it the King? Uh, Call this, from this, heaven. This time he didn't introduce me. Uh, and I was backstage, uh, 
talking to him and I was briefly running in and out and in the dressing room, there was all the, all the, his guys and all the girls and, 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 you know, like background sounds, you know, and people talking while you're in this and everybody's talking to, and I'm talking with Elvis and it's time I want to, I have to get out of there. And, and I'm starting to leave. And Elvis said, Bill, I'm sorry that I didn't introduce you. And, and the sound, you know, voices talking. I said, uh, oh, that's cool. No, no price. I said, I'll never come back. <laughs> and I mean, the whole room, it's like they took a knob and just turned it off. So these guys were talking to the girls and this and that, but they knew exactly what Elvis, what he was talking about or what was going on wow. there. Has he displeased the king? Silence. He's the guy, and and he uh, and I said, "Come on, man! I'm just kidding." Because yeah. his face, he really sure. was like a little boy, and he he was hurt. And I said, "I'm just kidding." <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. You know, he kept the same players for most of his career. How about you and the Righteous Brothers? Have you had your same backing musicians for most of your time? Yeah, we had uh, we had guys that were with us. Our entire career uh barry valera who was our guitar player and a uh, uh, great great guitar player and uh and we even took it we were the opening act on the the beatles first american tour Holy cow. and we took barry with us and so barry was with us uh until he got ill uh the whole time and we and we we really didn't hire bands listen you know anybody any good musician can play the righteous brothers show it's not difficult it's not jazz it's not it's three chords and two jokes you know so, <laughs> and uh uh so we really hired guys because we liked them and they were good players they were good players but we didn't hire them because they were great players we hired them because we liked them but I talk so about the the relationship that you learned, that you watch Louis Prima, uh, you know, develop this dialogue with with his with his guy, and that you kind of decided that's that's how I want to roll. I want to I want to incorporate that, and maybe that's what keeps guys with you is that they get they get to enjoy that conversation with you up there. He was an amazing entertainer. Yeah, it's funny you bring him up before he answers the question. Yeah. I've just been watching YouTube stuff with him and Keely Smith. Yeah, she was hysterical. She never changed the expression on her face, and he was hysterical. They were great interviews. Go ahead, Bill. Sorry. Okay, great. And what I really learned from watching that show, and, and it was Louis that I uh, learned it from. I, I never stole anything, but stuff would just sure. come into my you know, incorporate. Sure, a style. You know, and, uh, but he he just went after the audience, uh, just after him, you know. Yeah, and and if somebody was taking a solo, if Sam Batero was taking a solo, all the other musicians would be yeah yeah play Sam go, mm -hmm. and the audience would start doing the same thing. So I learned right there that go after the audience, you know, and I and that's what I would want to do anyway. But you know, because when you're on stage, they're your partner. Right. And right. Uh, and how they react and they can kind of turn themselves on the more the more they applaud. They say, boy, we really love this show. Don't we? And, yeah. And, uh, so he was an amazing entertainer. Well, yeah. And it becomes exponential and it becomes like a group activity. We're all doing this. Yeah, exactly. But I have a surreal moment that I'd like to um, tell the story. So my husband and I went on a cruise with with the cow sales. I made a movie about the cow sales. So we went on this cruise and the day we boarded. The cruise, Bill, you're going to remember this because you were there, was the, was Super Bowl day. So I, I find myself sitting with the cow sills poolside watching the Super Bowl and looking at Bill Medley. <laughs> and I'm, I'm in the middle of the ocean with Bill Medley watching the Super Bowl. And, you know, as a little kid who grew up listening to Bill Medley, that was – I looked at him more than I looked at the, the game – were you just on a tour, a, a, a cruise for yourself, or were you performing on that? Well, I I, I, I can't remember <laughs> what the Super Bowl it was. He does this. It was like five years ago. But yeah, it was it was the concerts <laughs> at sea. Well, was I on the cruise? Yeah, or? no, you were performing. 
You were one of oh, the yeah. acts, yeah. Was it Righteous Brothers or? No, it was you and McKenna. Oh, Paul Revere. It was Paul the Cow Sills, the Association, you, no, Gary Paul Lewis. Revere. That sounds Paul fantastic. Revere. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty interesting that I was at the pool with my clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying you had your clothes on. When did I ever? <laughs> I took for granted. I was at the pool. But, uh, yeah, the Cow Sills were on that and, uh, well, thank you. That, that's I'm I'm glad that that was cool for you. And Bob adores you, and he says hi. Ah, Bob is your husband? No, <laughs> she means Bob Cowsell. Bob Cowsell. Oh, Bob Cowsell. Yeah, no. I just I did an interview with them, and they were amazingly great. They yeah. were Righteous Brother fans, and yeah. they have their own podcast now. So I saw yeah. I saw that you that's were on it. it. Very cool people. So let's see, what else should we talk about? I want to talk about the rebirth of the Righteous Brothers and a great new series of concerts uh, in Las Vegas. And that has already started, Bill, did you say? No, it, it starts in August. I think we're at the South Point Hotel. We, we had been at Harris. Uh, we started in 2016 at Harris. And they, you know, they call it a residency uh, gig, and it's, uh, you know, it's, but we did about thirty weeks, you know, uh, and uh, but through the pandemic and everything, good friend of mine, Michael Gone, owns uh, the South Point Hotel, and uh, you know, my my career is winding down, and uh, so I. I just wanted to go back over there because he's a real good friend of mine and he has a great showroom and we're, we're there uh, August the 17th, 18th and 19th. And uh, so we'll probably do about I don't know, 10 or 12 weeks there. And uh, it's just great. It's great. Great to be in a hotel that you like. They have great food and great rooms and you don't have to pack up and leave all the time. Perfect. Talk about your partner. Yeah, let's hear about Bucky. How'd you find him? Oh, Bucky. Well, we were in prison together. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's how all your stories start. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I was, uh, Paul Revere and I went to, to, uh, we were asked by Dick Clark, uh, it was right before his stroke, that he, they were opening a, a American bandstand theater in Branson, Missouri. And he asked Paul, or he asked me to go. And, and I asked Paul if he would come with me. And uh, so we were working in Branson and Bucky was uh, working in a show, uh, Legends of Concert or, or Legends, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, and uh, he was doing John Belushi. He was do, he, he, they were imitating you know, the Blues Brothers. Okay. But it, then then he left that and started doing his own show down at another theater. And I bumped into him uh, at a wedding, oddly enough. And he said, Bill, if you ever get a chance, come down to the theater. And uh, he said, I'm doing a tribute to uh, Journey. I said, Journey? You're, do- you're doing Journey? Who- who's... Who's doing Steve Perry? Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the great singers. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, he said, I am. I'm doing. I said, you, you're going from John Belushi to Steve <laughs> Perry. And I was I was out to dinner that night with a couple of friends. And I said, you know, my friend, and we were good friends for the whole time I was there. He's a great guy. And I said, Bucky is doing a tribute to, to Journey. I got to go by and see. I just wanted to go there and watch him bomb. <laughs> he had the bomb. And I went there and he just blew my mind. Uh, he he just sang like Steve Perry and, and was copying. You know, he was imitating Steve Perry. Oh. But and, and I had had a lot of people say, Bill, reform, put in reform, uh, formed the, the Righteous Brothers again. And uh and a lot of fans, but a lot of friends and guys in the business say, you know, people just want to hear that music. And uh, so I was taking a walk on the lake there. And uh, and I said, man, if I was ever going to, 
if I was ever going to do that, mm-hmm. this is the only guy I would do it with because we were good friends. Yeah. And you know, when when you take on a partner, it's it's like like marriage order bride. You know, if, you know, <laughs> when I'm reading your book and I, I I'm getting the this sense that when you when two young people have a hit together, it's like having a baby together. You're going to both still be the parents of that song, no matter what happens to the two of you personally, like the Beatles, like John Lennon and Paul McCartney. It's like they have you have to co-parent these songs. And that's as tricky as, as raising children because people expect something from you. It's like having a child together. That was the, the analogy yeah, that you get to sing it every other weekend. Yeah, and- yeah yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but did it feel that way? Because you're so young when you have this hit record, and now I've got to negotiate this relationship with this kind of difficult guy. Well, Bobby wasn't difficult. We just didn't have we we just didn't have good communication, mm-hmm. you know. And there was things about me that bothered him and vice versa. And, and if we would have sat down and discussed, it, you know, uh, I could change. He, he would have changed, you know, but we didn't and stuff would fester and, you know, and that's all true that. of a hundred percent of all bands. Sure. It would have it really to be, is. it would have to be, but then you had a chance to reframe that relationship when you in, in the nineties, was it when you and Bobby, we're, we're performing at the hop together. You had a chance to, as grown-up men, readdress th- the issues or put all of that to rest and build a, a real honest, true brother brotherhood. Well, yeah, and I, I've heard other groups say this. You know, when we when, when we had our hit records in the '60s, we were boys, sure. we were kids. Yeah. And now, in the the end of the '80s, uh, Top Gun had love and feeling in it. I did a song for Dirty Dancing. I've been time, and and Unchained Melody was in Ghost, and we were back bigger than ever, and uh, we were getting offers, and we weren't together in 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 the uh, end of the eighties, and but we were getting such. Uh, now I sound like a whore, but we <laughs> we were getting such huge offers that uh, we said, okay, well we better go back and do this. But now we were men with families and children and we were just two different guys. So the nineties uh, until Bobby passed away in uh, 2003, it was perfect. Mm-hmm. It was great because we cut, we were just two different guys. Yeah. And you know, you're 24, 25 years old and now you're one of the biggest acts in the world and they're they're paying you more money than you can spend and girls are hitting on you that you would have never approached (laughs) (laughs) as bill medley uh but as bill righteous uh, it turned out pretty cool so that was pretty hard to screw your head on to as a 24 uh year old guys that we were just a couple of normal punks from uh orange county that were raised on rhythm and blues. And uh, when we recorded, you know, two white guys sounding black was probably the the most uncommercial thing you could do because the black stations couldn't play because you were white. White stations couldn't play because they thought we were black or sounded black. So nobody would play our music so it was the worst so, thing but before they found out you were white guys did they did any of your so- I, I was going to ask you that earlier did any of your songs cross over because they're beautiful r&b ballads well uh little Latin loopy lou we were on moonglow records but uh it was distributed by atlantic and obviously atlantic was mm-hmm. Huge R&B label. So a lot of black stations were playing Little Latin Oopie Loop. And the worst thing that we did was to go out and promote. Oh, there we go. Latin Oopie Loop. Because uh, they would take us to these uh, radio stations that were all, they were playing all black music. Like they could, if they took us to a, a station that played nothing but opera, well, we're not playing them anymore. They don't <laughs> And so not until Love and Feeling, they started playing Love and Feeling. And that's how we got the name Blue-Eyed Soul is that I think it started with the disc jockey in Philadelphia. 
uh, hipping his audience to the fact, here's, here's you've lost that love and feeling by the righteous brothers who are my blue-eyed soul brothers. Oh. He, in, in that, he was telling them that these guys are white. Yeah. Yeah. Because he spoon fed it, it to it, the audience so they wouldn't be offended well, by it's it. It's like a tip off, like the, these guys are cool, but they're white. Yeah. No, I love that. Hey, did, yeah, did yeah. you, are there, were there, are there, or were there uh, Righteous Brothers tribute bands? Uh, there's been, there's been a few, and uh, they, 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 they all have a tough time because Bobby had this beautiful. <laughs> that, was, that was my point. I think you better be a brave soul to do that. Yeah. I always thought it'd be great if you had a tribute band and then a, 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 the the original artist found out about it and just showed up one night. And then they looked out and like, there's Bill Medley standing at the exit sign. Like Sarah Palin showing up for <laughs> Tina Fey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, well Jimmy Rogers did, did that uh, with Legends of Concert or whatever that is. There was a guy imitating Kenny Rogers, but they convinced Kenny to go out there. Oh, cool. Instead of that guy. And literally, there were some people that said, that guy, that's no good. <laughs> He's <laughs> not nailing it. Oh, He's no Kenny it. Rogers. <laughs> that took guts. That's fantastic. Well, I'm going to remind people or inform people as to where they can find you, uh, Bill Medley, on Facebook. Uh, Facebook.com slash Bill dash Medley dash 21. Links will be in our show notes. Bill Medley on Twitter. Uh, Twitter.com slash Bill Medley Music. That's the official Bill Medley. And here come our closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and on Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Bill Medley. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker. We will see you along the media path. But first, Fritz has some stuff for you. And stick around because right after Fritz says what he's about to say, you're going to hear from Bucky and Bill about where you can find them next. <laughs> Fabulous. God willing, you enjoyed this episode of Media Path. It would help us, you know, to be more discoverable by the unlearned if you would leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. We have tons of great talent. Gary Puckett and the Calsills and Bill Medley and Diane Warren and Bill Moomy and Henry Winkler and Keith Morrison. Tons of great listening hours for you. Thank you so much for spending an hour with us and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. Bill, you are awesome. Bill and Bucky, what do we need to know about where you guys are appearing next? Hey, I'm Bill Medley. And I'm Bucky Hurd. we are the Righteous Brothers. That's right. We're so excited. Bill, on August 27th, we're going to be bringing our show live to the beautiful city of Charlotte, North Carolina at the Night Theater at Levine Center for the Arts. That's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. But boy, I'm going to tell you something. Charlotte, North Carolina is truly one of my favorite places. Wait to come eat. (laughs) We're going to be doing You've Lost That Love and Feeling, Soul and Inspiration, Unchained Melody, Rock and Roll Heaven. I've had... Time of my life. You better believe it. I don't know who sang that one. Not really either. Somebody pretty cool. <laughs> but you're going to have the time of your life. We know that. So we're going to see you, Charlotte, North Carolina, August 27th.